to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 37, as we follow along with today's lesson. And he would not allow any man to follow him. He dismissed the crowd. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and it is interesting, these three were selected by Jesus for special privileges. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was these three that Jesus had taken with him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, When Jesus ordered the disciples to pray, he brought Peter, James, and John a little closer. It seems that he would bring them into a closer fellowship with himself. And now he brings them that they might see this miracle, how that the Son of God can give life. And so with the Father, the five of them journeyed together to the house of Jairus, and as they approached the house, From down the block, they could hear the wailing. When a person was dying, oftentimes those friends, and in those days they had professional wailers who they would hire to come and wail for the dead. It was to show to the community how much they were grieving the loss of the loved one, how much they loved them. And so already the wailing had begun and the noise came down the block. All of the neighbors knew that this little girl who had been sick was now dead. And I can imagine the feelings of the heart of Jairus, the disappointment that he must have felt, the hopelessness. My little girl is dead. And when they were come into the house, Jesus said unto them, Why all of this fuss? Why do you weep? She's not dead. She's only asleep. But they laughed him to scorn. They scornfully mocked and laughed at him. You don't know what you're talking about. Interesting. Emotions seem to be very shallow. They can go from weeping and wailing to scornful laughter in just a moment. He put them all out. And he took the father and the mother and Peter, James, and John, 
And they went into the room where they had laid the little girl's body. Now, over in Israel, even to the present day, it is the custom to bury the person the day they die. They don't have, you know, the embalming, and they don't leave them in the funeral parlor for people to come and see them, and they don't set the date, you know, for the funeral five days or three days away or so forth. They bury the person the day they die. And so this little girl's body was lying there in the room, and Jesus went in with the disciples and the mother and dad, and he took her by the hand the touch that the father was wanting. I know if you'll just touch her. And he took her by the hand. And he said unto her, Talitha Kumi, my little lamb, arise. Beautiful. My little lamb. That's Aramaic which was probably the household language. It is interesting that in the book of Acts, when Peter was summoned by the church in Joppa to come on down because one of the members of the church, a very benevolent woman who had done so much good for so many people, Dorcas, she had died. And so they called for Peter, who was nearby in Lydda, to come on over. And when Peter came to where Dorcas was lying, he had been here with Jesus, and he heard Jesus say, Talitha Kumi, my little lamb arise. And Peter said to Dorcas, Tabetha Kumi. And it worked. <laughs> she came back to life. And immediately the little girl arose and walked, for she was about 12 years old. And they, mom and dad, Peter, James, and John, were astonished with great astonishment. You can believe that. And Jesus charged them very strictly that no man should know this. You see, Jesus had a set time in which he was to be revealed to the nation as their Messiah. All the way through the Gospel of John, we find him saying, my hour is not yet come. But as he was approaching the day of the cross, he said, my hour is come. He was very conscious of God's timing. He did not want any premature attempts to acclaim him or force him to assume the role of the Messiah. That's all a part of God's timing. There is a special day when he will be revealed to the nation as their Messiah, and he's not going to allow it to happen prematurely. That day in which he was to be revealed as the Messiah was what we commonly call Palm Sunday. 
the Sunday before his crucifixion. That was the day that he made his triumphant entry on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, but was despised and rejected by men. But he was waiting for that official time that God had set for the Messiah to appear. So that is why he said, keep this quiet. And he commanded that something should be given to the little girl to eat. (laughs) Always conscious of our needs. You know, having now brought her back from the dead, give her something to eat. The touch of Jesus. What a difference it makes in a person's life. And so Mark gives us these three accounts of the impact that Jesus had. The impact over the man whose life was destroyed by the demons that were controlling him. How this man was set free from the powers of darkness. The impact that Jesus had on this woman who was hemorrhaging. The power of Jesus over her plague. And now the impact on the daughter of Jairus, the power of Jesus over death. Mark is showing us the glorious powers of our Lord Jesus Christ and the difference he makes when he touches a person's life. And each of us tonight can testify of what the touch of Jesus has meant to us transformations that have taken place because he touched me. Mark chapter 6, as we move through the Bible. And when Jesus went out from thence, the thence would be the Sea of Galilee, the area of Capernaum, He came into his own country, which would be the area of Nazareth, his hometown, the city of Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And as we said this morning, don't think in terms of 12. Think in terms of multitudes. For there were many disciples following Jesus. Of those disciples, and the disciples included men and women, and of the disciples, he chose 12 of them to be called apostles. Later on, we read in the book of Acts, when there was sort of the reorganization of the church, or not, probably just the organization of the church, there was nothing to read about. I mean, they just sort of organized, Uh, Peter, as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, stood up and said, you know, it's, it's necessary that we get someone to take the place of Judas Iscariot. And so, uh, they, 
said, let us choose someone who has companied with us from the beginning. Someone who's been a part, a disciple from the beginning, who also can bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they chose two, and then they cast lots to see which of the two would be the Lord's choice. But there were many who had accompanied from the beginning. So when it says his disciples, that's all inclusive of, of the broader group, more than just the 12 apostles. So they came to his hometown of Nazareth, and we read, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things, and what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now, this coming to the synagogue is not to be confused with the account that we have in Luke's gospel. For Luke's gospel chapter 4 tells us that when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and after he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and then was tempted by Satan, that Jesus returned to Nazareth. And in verse 16 we read, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read the scriptures. And they delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. They handed to him the scroll of Isaiah. He turned in the scroll to the prophecy of chapter 61 in our Bible, where it reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of the sight to the blind, and set at liberty those that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all of those that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So having read the prophecy concerning the Messiah, he then declared, This day, this scripture is fulfilled. And an announcement, which of course evidently passed over them, that he was the Messiah. And they all bore witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And so then he went on to say other things that they did not interpret to be so gracious they became angry. In verse 29, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built 
that they might cast him down headlong. They were going to throw him over the cliff. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. And he then went on down to Capernaum, where he began his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Now, he has been ministering for a period of time. He has been doing marvelous works of God. In fact, he has been doing exactly what the prophecy of Isaiah said the Messiah would do. He was preaching the gospel to the poor. He was setting at liberty those who were bound by the powers of darkness, unclean spirits. He had been doing many marvelous works and his fame had spread around. And now he comes back to Nazareth, no longer obscure or an insignificant person, but with a reputation of a man who was able to do marvelous miracles and marvelous works. And again on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. And again, he began to teach in the synagogue and this time the people were again amazed, saying, where did he learn these things? And what is this wisdom and the mighty power whereby he is able to do these marvelous works? Is not this the carpenter? Now, before is not this the son of Joseph, but here is not this the carpenter? Their knowledge of Jesus, their familiarity with him stumbled them. They knew him as a carpenter. They knew him as a neighbor. They knew him as a craftsman. They perhaps had bought some of the yokes that he had made or the plows or the chairs or the tables. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary. Now, remember in Luke, it was the son of Joseph. Now they are saying the son of Mary. This could indicate that Joseph had died in these intervening time that between his first and second visit. But more probably... As the fame and reputation of Jesus grew and as word came back in Nazareth of the wonderful things that he was doing, some of the earlier whispers, some of the earlier suspicions of the people were brought up. How that Mary became pregnant before she and Joseph were married. And how that the child was born so rapidly after they were married. So that, is this not the son of Mary? Not this time the son of Joseph. And are not his brothers with us? Now this, of course, 
mitigates against the dogma of the Catholic Church of the perpetual virginity of Mary. They have established many different dogmas concerning Mary. The, and I don't, how that Mary is the, one of the mediators between you and Jesus, the mediation ministry of Mary, uh, the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary, the dogma of the, um, the sinlessness of Mary, she also was born without sin, and the dogma of the assumption of Mary into heaven, uh, how that uh, she ascended into heaven. That's a rather recent uh, dogma that has been declared by the church, and it created a little problem because they had a beautiful church in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which used to be known as the Church of the Tomb of Mary. And uh, so uh, that became a problem when they decided that she wasn't entombed but ascended into heaven. Um, so uh, the doctrine of the perpetual, vir or the dogma of the perpetual virginity uh, is sort of shattered by this statement that are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. They're still living here in town. And they were offended. They were troubled because of this. Um, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own hometown and among his own family and in his own house. It would appear that his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah until after his resurrection from the dead. And then this brother James became one of the major leaders in the early church. James, the disciple who was called to be an apostle, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, was martyred very early in the history of the church. When Herod stretched forth his hand against the church and had James beheaded, and uh, saw that it pleased the Jews, so he imprisoned Peter, intending to do the same to him. But Peter was delivered by the prayer. Well, Peter was delivered by the Lord. I don't know that the prayers of the saints had anything to do with it because uh, they really were praying without faith. When Peter knocked on the door and the young girl Rhoda went to the door and said, who is it? And said, it's Peter, let me in. She went running in to those that were praying for Peter and said, Peter's outside at the door. And they said, oh, you're kidding, you know, it must be a ghost, can't be Peter, he's in jail. And so surely it wasn't their faith uh, that uh, got Peter out. Uh, and uh, so uh, James, the brother of John, was martyred early in the church history, but then there arose this other James who sort of presided over the first church council, 
and is the one who issued the uh, decision of the church council to be sent to the Gentiles at Antioch. The James who wrote the epistle by his name uh, in the uh, latter part of the New Testament, the epistle of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus, uh, half-brother uh, as far as uh, technically because uh, Joseph was the father of James. And Jude, the little epistle of Jude, who was the brother of James. And so after the resurrection of Jesus, they became believers, they became disciples, and they became leaders in the early church. But their familiarity with Jesus, their thinking that they knew him, offended them. It was, it was hard for them. It was a stumbling block to them. But Jesus said unto them, well, then he could not there do any mighty work except that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Now it was not that their lack of faith hindered his power. God can work sovereignly by his power. And uh, it wasn't that their, their lack of faith hindered or restricted his power to do works. It was their unbelief kept them from coming to Jesus to receive his help. How many people there in Nazareth could have been helped if they had only had the faith to come to Jesus? If they had only had the faith to bring them to Jesus, they could have seen some marvelous works. But their unbelief kept them from him. Even today, unbelief keeps people from seeing the marvelous work of God in their lives that they could experience and they could know if they would only come to Jesus. Now, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. I mean, they had heard. They knew the works that he was doing. And the fact that Joseph wasn't his father should have only been a stronger confirmation that he was the Messiah. Because the prophet Isaiah said, God will give to you a sign, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. And they should have realized that he was that promised son of the virgin, and he was God dwelling with man. He marveled at their unbelief. Unbelief is oftentimes a rather marvelous thing in a, not in a, you know, in a, in a good sense, but in a interesting sense. Marvel. How is it that a person doesn't believe? What is it that keeps a person from believing? When there is so much to be gained by believing in Jesus, why would a person not believe? 
with all of the evidence there is, the witness of the thousands upon thousands of people whose lives have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, how is it the people still don't believe? How is it the people are so opposed to Jesus that they want to destroy him? I mean, it's, it's not a thing that a person is usually very passive about. A person, uh, it seems, has difficulty being passive with Jesus. Either they are passionately in love with him or they have very strong negative attitudes towards him. He marveled at their unbelief. And he went around in the villages teaching And he called unto him the twelve, that is, the twelve that he had chosen to be apostles. And he began to send them forth by two and two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits. So now to spread further the gospel and the work of God, he sends these apostles out two by two. And I, and I think there's wisdom in that. A partner, someone with you, is a, a great assist. There's, there's a power when you have someone with you who shares equally your love and your faith in Jesus Christ. And so he gave them the power over the unclean spirits and he commanded that they should not take anything that is in way of provision for their journey. Save only their walking stick. Don't take any scrip, that is, uh, that which was used for the exchange of goods. Don't take bread or take any money in your purse. Just Go out. You got your. I mean, he's sending them out in faith. I'm. I'm sort of amused sometimes at the requests that we receive from people who feel that they are called of God to go on the mission field, and um, they send their list of requests to the board. And uh, they want money for a large uh, shipping crate to be shipped on the Madison lines. Uh, They want money for a nice apartment in Rio de Janeiro, uh, which costs $1,250 a month. They need $400 a month for a servant And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And I think, wow, they'd have never made it as one of Jesus' disciples. He said, don't take a purse, don't take any script, don't take any money, just take your walking stick and go. People would think you were abusing them today. If you just sent them out, just say, take your venture in faith, just go, the Lord's Guiding you, he's going to be with you and he'll take care of you, you know. Oh, no, I don't want that. (laughs) 
I want to be guaranteed a salary. So he said, be shod with sandals, but don't take two coats. And he said unto them, in what place soever you enter into a house, there abide until you depart from that place. Now in the east, hospitality was a marvelous thing. And uh, you weren't really required to go and when you came into a village to go and look for a place to stay the villagers felt obligated to find the stranger and invite them in hospitality eastern hospitality was a beautiful thing so whosoever uh, receives you just enter into the house and abide until you depart from there but whosoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, just shake the dust from under your feet for a testimony against them. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the Jewish people did not want any kind of contact with the Gentiles. And so as they would enter the land of Israel from Gentile territory, when they came to the border, they would always shake the dust off their sandals. They didn't run to bring the dust from the Gentile territories into Israel. And they would just, you know, go through a ceremony shaking the dust off because they felt that if they brought the dust of the Gentiles into Israel, it would defile the land. So there was this idea of, of just shaking the dust off your sandals, just sort of a creating this breach, the breach or the separation, uh, the bridge between. And so shake the dust off your sandals. As a testimony against them, and I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, there is a day of judgment coming. This is what the text teaches. And all are to be judged. Those of Sodom and Gomorrah will stand before the judgment of God. Now, those who have rejected or will not receive the truth of God will face a greater judgment, a more severe judgment than those who were not exposed to the truth of God and yet did things that were horrible. You can't get much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so bad, God ordered the city destroyed. And yet when those people stand in judgment, because they did not have much understanding or light of the law of God, it'll be easier on them than those who have known the truth and turned from the truth or those who listen and reject the truth are those who just close their minds to the truth. So that so often we meet people and they have that stock question 
about what about that heathen who lives in some remote area of Africa and who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and he dies. Will God, a loving God, punish that man eternally in hell when he has never had a chance to hear the gospel? Well, it is always warming to my heart to realize that people are so concerned for that poor heathen in Africa. And I think that's very good. And I'm surprised that they don't go as a missionary if they are so concerned to tell him the truth of Jesus Christ. However, they better be more worried about themselves because it's going to be a lot easier on that person than it's going to be upon them when they stand before the Lord, having rejected the truth. And so Jesus is saying, when the day of judgment comes, those of Sodom and Gomorrah will have an easier time than those who have rejected, refused to receive the light of the gospel. And so they went out <laughs> And they preached that men should repent. That was the gospel message. Change. Turn. Don't live any longer after the flesh. Don't live any longer in the lust of your flesh. Don't give in to the anger and to the malice and the wrath and the strife that is a part of human nature. But you can be transformed by the Spirit of God. You need to be loving and forgiving and patient and kind and gentle. And they cast out many devils. And they anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And so we find the practice of anointing with oil in healing and in praying for the sick. In the epistle of James. He said, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. And so the idea of anointing with oil and praying for the sick, it's biblical. It was here in the gospels. It was taught in the epistles. King Herod. <laughs> oh, now, King we When you get into this Herodian family, you get into a real mess. I mean, it's so hard to, to, to sort things out. You see, it all started with this guy, Herod the Great. But the problem was he had so many wives. And he was a paranoid little guy. And he was fearful that his sons were plotting against him. And he killed so many of his sons that they had a common saying, it's safer to be a pig than the son of Herod. Now, one of his wives, that is probably one of the best known, because he seemed to genuinely love her, she bore him two sons, one whose name was Aristopolis. But he thought that Aristopolis and his brother, 
along with their mother Miriam, were plotting against him. So he had them killed. And then he had remorse and he built a beautiful tower for Miriam there at the Joppa Gate in Jerusalem. But Aristopolis, the son of Herod by Miriam, who was called the Hasmonean because he married another Miriam, like the name, I guess. <laughs> Aristopolis, before he was killed by his father, had a daughter whose name was Herodias. Now, this other Marian, who was called the Bothusian, Bothusian, she had a son whose name was Herod Philip. Now, Herod Philip didn't care for ruling, and so he moved to Rome and lived in a palatial home and was in the social scene in Rome. But Herod Philip married his niece Herodias. Now Herod the Great had a, another son, another wife named Malthic. She had a son that they called Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas went to Rome to visit his half-brother Herod Philip. There he seduced his niece and would-be sister-in-law, Herodias, to leave Herod Philip and to come back to the land with him to be his wife. And so he took and seduced Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and she came back with him having really the ambitions of being, you know, the first lady of uh, the territory. Now, while she was married to Herod Philip, she had a daughter named Salome who came back with her uh, to live there in Tiberias at the Sea of Galilee. Now, Herod the Great, back to the originator of all this, had another wife whose name was Cleopatra. He had another wife named Doris, and uh, her son he killed too, and, and he felt he was conspiring against him. But he had another wife named Cleopatra, and she was called Cleopatra of Jerusalem to distinguish her from the Cleopatra of Egyptian fame. And she had a son called Philip the Tetrarch. And he married Salome, who was his niece and his grandniece, both at the same time. So the whole thing gets so twisted, you know, and intertwined. So now as we read the story... <laughs> Maybe we can put a few things in our minds together. King Herod, that is Herod Antipas, who had gone to Rome and seduced his sister-in-law, who was also his niece. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things, I'm my own grandpa or something, you know. I mean, just... 
when King Herod heard of Jesus. Now, evidently, as uh, the disciples were going out, or the apostles were going out and doing the miracles, word came back to Herod of this movement uh, in his territory. He was the tetrarch of, of the Galilee region. And so when he heard of Jesus, for his name, that is the name of Jesus, was spread abroad, he said, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And therefore the mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So I, I think he was hoping that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. He really felt badly over uh, the execution of John. But others said concerning Jesus, it's Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard of him, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He's risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and he had laid hold upon John and bound him in prison at the urging of Herodias for the sake of his brother Philip's wife. So we told you he went to Rome and seduced her, his brother Philip. So she was, this Herodias was upset because John had said unto Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He was speaking against this union and made Herodias mad and you don't want to get a woman mad at you. So, Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against John the Baptist and would have killed him, but she could not. I mean, she was so angry with him because of his preaching and all that she wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. For Herod feared John. Now, he respected him. He, uh, and the word feared here is that of he had respect for John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy man, and he listened to him. He watched him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. He, he, he was fascinated by John. John was a character. And uh, John was a straight shooter, and he knew it. And, and he was fascinated by him. But because of the pressure from Herodias, he had John put in prison. Now, when a convenient day was come, Herod's birthday, he made a supper for his lords, his high captains, and the chief people of Galilee. And when the daughter of this said Herodias, whose name was Salome, came in and danced before Herod, it pleased him and those that sat with him. Now, for a princess to degrade herself in this kind of a dance for it was a very seductive sexually seductive type of dance and the whole purpose was uh, it was a pantomime kind of a thing and the whole purpose was to arouse and he became aroused and those that were with him the king said to the damsel, sort of a striptease kind of a dance, ask of me whatsoever you will, and I will give it to you. And he swore unto her, 
Whatsoever you will ask of me, I will give it to you unto the half of my kingdom. And so she went out and she said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And so she came in immediately with haste to the king and she asked, saying, I wish that you would give to me by and by in a charger or on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now King Herod was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and for the sake of those that were with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought And he went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head in a platter, and he gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when the disciples of John heard of it, they came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And so the end of John the Baptist. Now the apostles gathered themselves, that is the twelve, unto Jesus, And they told him all of the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. They came back with their reports of what had happened to them, uh, what they had done and, and the things that they taught, the experiences. It was a time of sharing. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a deserted area and rest for a while because there were so many people coming and going that they had not enough time to even eat. They, they were given no leisure time at all. Jesus could see that they had been through some strenuous experiences. They were sort of weary. And so he is suggesting to them, let's just go over to a deserted area uh, that you might, uh, you know, just be refreshed and all. So they got in a little ship. And they departed to the deserted area privately. And the people saw them departing. And many knew him and ran afoot from out of all of the cities. And they outwent them and came together unto him. Now as you're going from Capernaum, uh, it's not very far to the other side maybe a distance of five miles and probably a, you know, 10 hour or so uh, journey in a little ship. So that the only rest they really got was while they were in the ship. But you know, there's something about sailing that is very restful. You know, you're just out there and just with the wind and the lapping of the water, it is a restful experience. And so... Uh, Their rest was in going to the other side because by the time they got to the other side, here was a huge crowd of people waiting for them. Uh, I can see the disciples, you know, just shaking their head and saying, come on, give us a break, you know. But Jesus, it says, was moved with compassion when he saw the multitude. Now, it's easy to to watch the direction a ship is going. 
There at Capernaum, you can see all the way to the other side, over to the area of Bethsaida, where they had gone. You, can, it, it's, you could watch the ship the whole way. You could see it landing on the other side. So as soon as the people got the direction the little ship was going, they started running around the upper part of the lake, and it isn't really that far. And as they were going through the various cities, the villages, the cities of the Decapolis, people were joining them. It became like the Boston Marathon. <laughs> and, and people joined with them. What's happening? Where are you going? Oh, Jesus is going to be over. Oh, really? And on, they were all taken off. So here as they pull in to shore in this sort of a deserted area just beyond Bethsaida, We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the compassion of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 5-6 through 6 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks tonight for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we thank you for your touch upon our lives and how, Lord, you have brought us from death into life, from darkness into light, from the powers of darkness into your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for your wonderful touch. May we go out, Lord, and in your name, let us touch this hurting, needy world. And we thank you for it. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. What does the future hold? Is the end of time really near? When will the church be raptured? What is the rapture? Will we see the Antichrist? What about the Great Tribulation? Join Pastor Chuck Smith as he answers these and many more questions about the end times in his exciting book, Final Act. Now available in hardcover, Pastor Chuck gives great insight into man's final days here on earth. 
Joe Rosenberg calls Final Act a powerful, provocative end times primer. Tim LaHaye states this unique and dramatic treatment is both true to scripture and practical. Read about this exciting drama and get answers to your questions on world wars, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the Second Coming, and more. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-9673.